The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Impact. Uh, We've had several folks ask us about why we do impact and what it is. Uh, Rather than doing vacation Bible schools, many churches do, and that's a good thing to do. Uh, Our philosophy ministry at TBC is we want you to impact your sphere of influence. And so rather than bringing kids here for a week of vacation Bible school, we want your home to become a lighthouse. We want your home to be a lighthouse all year long for the Savior. And so you invite your neighborhood kids or friends of your kids' friends and, uh, or friends of your kids uh, to join them in the backyard. And uh, we'll send our junior high, high school students who are excellently trained to be part of that. So uh, impact is our reaching our neighborhood, our sphere of influence for the sake of the gospel. Acts chapter 18, if you have your Bibles or your apps, would you turn them on or open them with me to that section of God's word, cruising into Corinth, the gospel comes to Corinth. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, there's an outline that you have in your hands as well. After these things, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had uh, commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. Uh, Just a quick comment on tent makers. First of all, probably a leather worker. In that day and age, tents were typically made out of leather, not tents like we see them, but uh, much smaller. And uh, probably he worked not just making tents, but other things. And the other thing, in missions, this has become a technical term, a tent maker. In our day and age, uh, here's Paul providing for himself financially through making tents. In our day and age, we have countries that are close to the gospel. And so we send folks in, they have to have a legitimate business to be in that country, and uh, they supply partially for themselves to that business. Uh, So we call them tent makers, tent makers. They go to countries where the gospel or where there are countries that are closed to the gospel. They go and provide for themselves in some way, have a business there, uh, work for someone there. And uh, so they are tent makers providing for themselves as Paul did here. Beginning in verse 4, continuing in verse 4. So Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Father, as we look at the gospel heading into Corinth, as we look at the truth of uh, Paul, who'd been a rather difficult journey, where we recognize that sometimes discouragement sets in even to godly men like Paul. And so, Father, as we look at the way you comforted him, I pray that you would allow us to see the comfort you've extended to us as well. In the name of Jesus, amen. You ever wrestle with the beast of discouragement? I mean, it may not be something that settles in for a long season, but maybe just a a difficult day. Or maybe a season in life when you have been discouraged. Somebody uh, gave several examples. Discouragement sets in when you finish the project after many days of work and all of a sudden the computer screen goes blank and all is lost. Can you relate to that? Discouragement. Discouragement. Uh, You can't find your keys. You're late for work again. Discouragement. Your twin sister forgets your birthday. That's a discouraging day. You wake up and discover your waterbed has sprung a leak and you realize you sold your waterbed 20 years ago. Some of you get that this afternoon when you're snoozing. 
discourage. We all have days like that. Thursday morning was a little bit like that for me. I got up and uh, we had a bunch of stuff to take to the TBC garage sale. And so I'm um, loading up my car. I made several trips in and out of the house. Needed to be here to teach Bible study at 6.30. Got in a nick of time. And uh, we had a memorial service that day. One of our men passed away. And uh, so I went to put my coat and tie on uh, about 10.20 for an 11 o'clock memorial service. And I realized I forgot my coat and tie at home. So we live at the end of 31st Street. I hop in my car, head down to my house, get there. It takes about 10 minutes, and uh, I'm headed back. And uh, finally, I pull into the parking lot of the church here. And as I pull in the parking lot, I go to open the door, and I hear on the loudspeaker, Sir, get back in your car. And I look up and wonder what in the world is gone, and I see two lights going off behind me and realize this is not going to be a good day. And uh, so I go back in my car, hand my license and registration to a really nice man, and he says, sir, do you have any idea why I have stopped you? And I wanted to think, well, you didn't stop me. I pulled in here and stopped myself, but <laughs> wasn't going to say that. Uh, he said, uh, sir, do you have any idea why I stopped you? And I said, uh, no, but I'm sure I'm guilty of whatever it is because I'm in a hurry. He says, I know you're in a hurry. You rolled through a stop sign at the corner of Astor Marlinwood. You rolled through a stop sign right here. And uh, when you turned off a forest trail onto Pin Oak, I turned my lights on and you went that whole street without even seeing me or pulling over. And I wanted to say, well, I've got one eye and I'm deaf, but I didn't say that either. I just said, I'm sure I'm guilty. He said, you are. It's on my camera. Do you want to see it? No, sir. I believe you. Uh, I'm guilty. He said, is there a reason why you're in a hurry? I look up and there are 50 people standing there waiting to go into a funeral to wonder who this criminal is that everybody, I mean, they have no idea who I am. And uh, so he uh, looked at me and said, uh, sir, uh, my, no, he didn't say, he said, uh, Pastor Gary is what he said. Pastor Gary. So obviously he knew who I was. He said, I advise you to slow down before you hurt someone or somebody else hurts you. Have a great day. And uh, I appreciate that, man. If you're here today, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) We can go out for dinner this week instead of paying for a ticket. And, uh, but you ever have a day like that? I mean, I I wouldn't, I mean, I was just trying to do right and uh, running a little late. And I'm sure I rolled through both those stop signs. I didn't have recollection of that. I'm sure it was on the camera. I believe it. And uh, he was really, really a nice man. So um, I'm thinking, this isn't good. I mean, I've got to come to a funeral with all these people that watch me get pulled over in my own own parking lot. (laughs) Who wants to listen to that guy? Uh, That's where Paul was. I, I mean, Paul has had a rough go. If you remember, the second missionary journey started with a division. Do you remember that story? I I preached it a few weeks ago. They're getting ready for a second missionary journey. They're going through their checklist. They get to the bottom of the checklist, and Barnabas says, uh, last thing, we've got John Mark, and Paul says, who? John Mark? No, he's not coming. What do you mean he's not coming? He deserted us the first time. Barnabas says, no, he's coming. And the little, the little Greek translation is there was a sharp disagreement. There was a, there was, there, they got red in the face. There's this heated discussion between Paul and Barnabas. He's coming. No, he's not. He's coming. No, he's not. He's coming. There. Fine, 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 fine. And Paul and Barnabas go their separate ways. Now, we did see that they reconciled at the end of their life. We saw that in 2 Timothy 4. But that, that's how this trip started. That's how this journey started. And, and so here's Paul taking off on the second missionary journey. It starts with him dividing from his best friend. 
Then he stops off at Philippi. You remember what happened to Philippi? Dave Tate preached that message. Uh, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates are to be stripped and beaten with rods. Uh, that's a pretty tough journey, wouldn't you say? They're beaten with rods. They are severely flogged. They're thrown into prison. The jailer commanded the guard to watch them carefully. So they put them in the inner cell and they fastened them in stocks. I mean, that's the way this trip started. Dividing with Barnabas, headed different directions. Then they go to Philippi. They're cast into jail at Philippi. And so he goes on to Thessalonica. He gets there, but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters in the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. And so they they move from there to Thessalonica. When they get there, then what they find is that uh, he's cast into jail. Or there's a riot that breaks out and they want to kill him. And from there, he goes to Berea. He travels about 25 miles to Berea. When he gets there, the Jews in Thessalonica heard that Paul was in Berea preaching. And so they sent people to agitate the crowds and stir him up. So Paul's running for his life in Thessalonica, running for his life in Berea. And so he goes to Athens. When he gets to Athens, they use a word. They say he's a seed picker. He's like a bird gone place to place, picking seeds, doesn't have an original idea of his own. In fact, when he talks about the resurrection, some of them sneered at him. And so Paul is on this journey to preach the good news of the gospel. And every place he goes, he gets beaten, thrown into jail, or chased out of town. How's that for a vacation for you? How's that for a missions trip? That was like the first missions trip you ever took. You think you'd be on another one? And here's Paul. He's coming into Corinth now. And I'm going to suggest to you when he comes into Corinth, he's rattling discouragement. I'm going to show you why I think that in a second. But he's battling discouraged. You can see why. I mean, you'd be discouraged too. Beaten, flogged, thrown into prison, chased out of town. You go into Athens by yourself. They call you a dumb seed picker. You teach them about the resurrection. They sneer at you. So he comes into Corinth. Corinth was one of the most corrupt cities of that day and age. Corrupt city. It was a city that was economically prosperous, but morally bankrupt. Economically prosperous, morally bankrupt. Chuck Swindoll says this about Corinth. What a mess. Fast and gaudy, slick and sassy, sensual and busy. A sailor's favorite port, a prodigal's paradise, a policeman's nightmare, a preacher's graveyard. Corinth was a mess. What do we know about Corinth, the city? What do you know about the city? Well, first of all, we know that it was positioned geographically to thrive. It was positioned geographically to thrive. We're teaching, uh, just finished teaching 1 Corinthians, moving into 2 Corinthians on Thursday mornings. Men, if you want to start with us, it's a brand new study. 6.30 a.m. Thursday mornings, we're done by 7.25 so you can get to work. Corinth was positioned geographically to excel, to, to prosper. It's located on an isthmus. The isthmus is a narrow strip of land connecting two larger bodies. That's it right there. That isthmus was four miles wide. Four miles wide. You look at that little isthmus right there. Corinth is located on that isthmus. And so Corinth, to go north and south, this is the country of Greece. So if you were going to go from Athens south or from south to Athens and up into the other parts of Greece, you had to go through Corinth. You had to go through the crossroads there. So if you're traversing north and south, you had to go through Corinth. And then if you look right here, Corinth is also positioned where if you're traveling east and west by sea, you wanted to avoid the Cape of Malaya, which was here. It's considered the most dangerous part of the Mediterranean. In fact, the sailors had a saying, he who travels through Malaya should forget that he has a wife and a home. It was a dangerous place. Many people, many ships were shipwrecked. Many died when they went around the Cape of Malaya. And so you've got two gulfs. You've got the Sardonic Gulf and the Corinthian Gulf connecting the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea. And they became pretty ingenious about how they could cross it. Now, there wasn't a canal there yet. There is today, but there wasn't then. And so they had two ways to get cargo across. If there was a large ship, they would unload the cargo 
they would take it four miles across land and they would load it up on a ship waiting on the other side. But if it was a small vessel, a small sailing vessel, they did an ingenious thing. They built a roadway. And then they had rollers that they would place under these smaller ships or or vessels, sailing vessels, and they would have slaves. And so for four miles across the isthmus, they would have slaves pull the ship or the small sailing vessel uh, across. That's actually a picture of what the roadway is like today. You can imagine what it was like 2,000 years ago. And so this is what it looked like. This is the actual pathway, the roadway in Corinth from one gulf to the other. And so they'd either unload ships, walk walk the cargo four miles the other side, or they would put these ships on rollers and have slaves pull ropes and pull them across those four miles. So what we see is that Corinth is geographically placed to thrive. The streets are filled with people doing commerce headed north and south, east or west. It was filled with sailors who were with their ships and they would spend nights there. They would stay in inns. They would stay other places. Corinth was actually larger and more commercially prosperous than Athens was at this time. And so Corinth... Tremendous place prospering economically. They also prospered economically because they hosted the Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games are much like the Olympic Games, uh, even had greater fame throughout Greece at portions of time. And so year-round, uh, athletes would be there to prepare. And once, once a year versus every four years like the Olympics, the Isthmian Games would be held. And so the coffers of the city commerce would be filled, or, or the city would be filled with the commerce there. So you had its geographical location, you had the Isthmian Games, and it was economically prosperous. The tragic thing is, Corinth was also morally corrupt. Morally corrupt. It was morally corrupt because of religion. Because of religion. These are the ruins of the Temple of Aphrodite. Temple of Aphrodite was located in the Acropolis in Corinth. Acropolis, we saw last week, acro meaning hill, polis meaning city, the highest hill in any city. And the, the Temple of Aphrodite was one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was located in the Acropolis in Corinth. It was a, since Aphrodite was the goddess of love, the love goddess, uh, one of the ways that worship took place was that this temple actually housed 1,000 prostitutes. There was room for a thousand prostitutes, a thousand women to stay there. And somehow, ritual prostitution was called worship. Somehow, when you worship the goddess of love, what you did, uh, you would bring men there and they would participate in drunken orgies. And so sailors, men from Athens, men of Corinth, would all make their way up their Acropolis and they would find themselves in the throes of some prostitute and somehow... They would deem it and call it worship. It's to the streets of Corinth, these streets, that Paul takes the gospel. And it's a miracle that a church was born. He came by himself. God knew that Paul would need some comfort. He's been through this very difficult time. He's been through this great struggle. He's been cast into prison. He's been beaten. He's been flogged. He's been run out of town on three separate occasions. And so God provides for him and his goodness and his grace and his mercy with several things. First thing he does is provide him the companionship of friends. Provides him with the companionship of friends. As Paul comes to Corinth, he comes by himself, but as only God can sovereignly arrange, Claudius, a pagan Roman emperor, had rid all the Jews out of Rome, and including in that was this couple named Priscilla and Aquila, and they end up in the city of Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila would become lifelong friends of Paul. 
Paul would, uh, they would be cohorts in ministry, colleagues in ministry. They would be dear friends. They were godly people. And only as God can sovereignly arrange it, a Roman emperor provides Paul with companionship when he comes to the cornal city of Corinth. And in fact, they became so close in Romans when Paul was concluding that book. If you look in front of you in Romans chapter 16, the end of the book, he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. They have risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the Gentiles, all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for him. It says Priscilla and Aquila, they've done a great job. You need, to, you need to greet them and honor them because that they are my co-workers. And so this is later on. Romans is written later on. But as Paul comes into Corinth, he says he, he, God has placed for him Priscilla and Aquila. And then if you look at verse 5, eventually Timothy and Silas come down and meet him there. They come from Macedonia where they've been, Thessalonica, that region. And they come down and they meet Paul in Achaia. That's the province in the region where, um, where, where he is when he comes into Corinth. And there, Paul not only has friends, but now he's got a team. He's got Priscilla, Aquila, he's got Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And so God does two things. He provides them companionship, the companionship of friends, the companionship of a team. Let me stop and make a quick application here. If you have been blessed with a friend who will stick to you during difficult times, if you've been blessed with a friend who's stuck with you during difficult times, has come alongside you, ministered to you, and cared for you, and loved on you, you're blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed. Let me give you a quick application. Pens ready? Or phones, you can take a note on your phone or you can write with your pen. And I'm watching every one of you. I've got 1,000 eyes today. <laughs> I'm watching. You ready? I want you to write down the name of a friend who's come alongside and loved on you, cared for you, and ministered to you. Type it on your phone. Write it in your notes. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. This week, this week, send them a text. Send them an email. Thank them for their friendship. Maybe take them the coffee. Maybe buy their lunch. Maybe take them to dinner. And just say, you know, I am so grateful for your friendship. Hey, and let me tell you something. Guys can do that too. Okay, this isn't just for ladies. This isn't for ladies. Hey, if you're a dude and you've got a friend like that, you are blessed beyond belief. And there, there's an easy application for you. To thank some guy for being your friend. To thank some gal for coming alongside you. Paul shows up, here's Priscilla and Aquila, and he says, you know what? They risked their lives for me. Honor them. Bless them. Who can you do that to? Who can you bless by just sending a word of thanksgiving for them being your friend? The second thing you note here is that God gave them a team. We're not made to function individually in the spiritual life. God didn't expect us to go to the spiritual life alone. He expects us to, or, or he provides for us a team. All the way back in Genesis, he's looking at creation, and uh, each day he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Then he looks at Adam and he says, uh, uh, Houston, we have a problem. We've got a problem. And he says, not good. Not good for man to what? Be alone. But wait a minute, he's in face-to-face communion with God. Wouldn't that, isn't that enough? Does he need more than that? Yes, he does. It's not good for man to be alone, so I'm going to provide for him a helper, a suitable helper. So God provides companionship for him. God provides friendship for him. God provides a team for him as well. God provides a team for for Paul. 
Yesterday I had the privilege of, uh, I, I got up early, came up here and just thanked everybody for working the garage sale. I went around every room, thanked everybody that was there. I, it was an amazing thing to see, to see a team in action. Impact, to see a team in action. Thursday for this funeral, afterwards uh, the Mercy team had provided food. We've got women in there serving. Many of you are part of various teams here at TBC. It's a blessing to see. It's a blessing to see. I came back, I, I had to take Bev to the airport. She's meeting our grandson, who I won't get to meet for a couple of months. But, but, but she, 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 when, I, when I came back, I came back to the garage sale, helped load things up. I stood back for a second. I counted over 50 people loading up a trailer to take stuff to Goodwill that was left over from the garage sale. A team functioning. If you're not part of a smaller community of believers in this body, I'm encouraged to do one of two things. Contact David Richardson this week. David's over there dying because I'm saying contact him. We've got 100 people in contact this week. You need to be part of a smaller community of believers. We'll help you find that. And if you can't find it, start one. We have studies all over the place where some guy will invite two other guys to meet him for coffee at, at Cracker Barrel and, and they've got a study gone. Or I, I love it. I can walk into Starbucks and see gals ministering to gals. I can walk into Cracker Barrel. I walk into a lot of restaurants, obviously, and I see... <laughs> People with Bibles opening, ministering to one another. And I tell you, it makes my heart leap with great joy. And so he provided that for Paul. We don't need to go through life alone. In uh, that book that has my favorite title, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Him by John Ortberg, uh, he writes this. He says, as frustrating as people can be, it's hard to find a good substitute for him. And he's right. A friend of mine was ordering breakfast on a recent trip, his first trip to the South. He was a Dutchman, born in Michigan, reared in Michigan, had never been to the South. He saw grits on the menu. He had never been very clear on what what grits were. So he asked the Southern waitress, said, ma'am, what exactly is a grit? Her response was a look of disbelief. Honey, she said, grits don't exist in isolation. No grit is an island, entire in itself. Every grit is a part of the mainland, a piece of the whole. You can't order a single grit, honey. They're a package deal. What is a grit? I mean, only somebody from, well, I'm not going to say, we got a bunch of people. Got dear friends from Michigan here. I mean, you don't go to a restaurant and say, hey, honey, I'd like a grit. Really? He's lucky that woman didn't slap him upside his ugly head. I, I mean, that's the way we are in the spiritual life. God has made us to exist in communion and community with other believers. And you miss a great blessing if you don't have that. You miss the blessing of sharing life together, the blessing of accountability, the blessing of friendship. And I encourage you to find that and we'll help you find it. Well, God provides that for Paul. He provides it for Paul. He provides him companionship. The next thing he does, he provides him with converts. I, I, I mean, Paul's getting frustrated. Look at verse five. He's going into verse four. He's gone to the synagogue preaching. Uh, he devotes his time in verse, uh, verse 5, studying the word and testifying that Jesus is the Messiah. But what's the response of the people in Corinth? Look at verse 6. They resisted and blasphemed. They resisted the gospel and they spoke blasphemy about Jesus. And so what does Paul do? He shook off his garments you see that in the scriptures a lot. People shaking off their garments. You say, that must be a big deal. Well, in that culture, it meant, I want no dirt of you to be on me. That's what it meant. I, I don't want anything of you to be on me. I, I don't want the dirt of your land to be on me. I, 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 I want to be independent of you. That's what it meant. 
So he shakes off his garments. And look at what Paul says. He, he says, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. He, he says, I'm done with you. He threw up his arms in frustration. He'd gone to the synagogue week after week. He'd been preaching Christ to them. They rejected him and they rejected Christ. And, and Paul says, I'm done with you. Nuts to you. I'm going to suggest to you that Paul was frustrated. And some of you say, Gary, you can't say that about the apostle Paul. But first of all, he was not deity. He was not God. He was a sinful man, just like the rest of us. And although he was a very godly man, uh, Paul was no different than we are. He had times he got frustrated in sin. And I suggest to you he was frustrated with the Jews at Corinth for two reasons. I suggested, first of all, because I look at the next chapter. He's out, he takes off on the third missionary journey. He goes to Ephesus, and where does he go? Look at chapter 19, verse 8. In chapter 19, verse 8, he entered where? Where did he enter? Synagogue. He entered the synagogue. So he's not giving up on the Jews completely. By the way, he's the same guy that wrote Romans where it says, you go to the Jew first, then you go to the Greek. He was just fed up with the people in the synagogue in Corinth. And he said, I'm done with you. Your blood be on your own head. I think he was totally frustrated with them. I also believe he's frustrated. I believe verses 9 and 10 bear that out. If you look at verses 9 and 10, the Lord said to Paul in a vision, don't be afraid any longer. By the way, that's why I also believe that he was discouraged. Paul, you don't have to be afraid anymore. I believe these are words of encouragement, but also a rebuke. He's saying, Paul, don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. I am with you, and no one's going to attack you to harm you. Paul, you're not going to die. Paul, you don't have to be afraid. Paul, keep preaching. Keep doing what I've called you to do. Paul, don't leave. And Paul obeyed. Look at what he did in verse 11. He stayed there for another year and a half. The words some of you need to hear today are this. Don't quit. Don't stop. Persist. Persevere. Don't give up. Don't quit that marriage. Don't give up on that friendship. Don't quit that ministry. Don't give up on that prodigal son or daughter. Don't stop working on that job. Don't give up on school. Don't stop. Persevere and persist. Persevere, persist, don't give up. One lady wrote, uh, my pastor preached on not quitting, not giving up. So I went home after church that day. I finished two bags of potato chips and a chocolate cake. (laughs) Not what I'm talking about. Some of you in cold marriages don't stop. Some of you in boring jobs don't quit. Some of you hate school, don't stop. Some of you are rejected in friendships. Persevere, persist, don't stop. Paul, don't stop. So he didn't. So you know what happens? I I mean, an amazing thing happens. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is verse 8. I've got it underlined in circle. If you've been at TBC for many years, you've heard me preach about it and talk about it. In verse 8, it says, And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they had heard, when they'd heard Crispus got saved, they began believing they were baptized. And if you've heard me talk about this before, uh, you know what my question is going to be, or my statement is going to be. Crispus was, in my opinion, the least likely person in all of Corinth to come to faith in Jesus. I mean, he's the least likely person in all of Corinth to come to faith in Christ. He's a synagogue leader. He's paid to be in the synagogue. He's an official of the synagogue. 
And so if he comes to Christ, he loses his job, he's ostracized from his friends, probably loses uh, the extended family, his immediate household came to faith, extended family turned his back on him, he's, he's jobless, he's without friends, he's now a follower of Christ, but he's lost everything else. If he comes to faith, his world is rocked and changed. He pays a price for it, but he does. And I submit to you that Crispus may have been the least likely person in all of Corinth to come to faith in Jesus. So my question to you, it always is, who's your Crispus? Got your pens again? Got your phones again? You ready? Take a note. Who's your Crispus? I want you to write a name down. Who is the least likely person in your world to come to faith in Jesus? Maybe somebody in your family, you think, man, he'll never come to Jesus. There's no way. It'll be a cold day in hell. Or, or at work, man, there's no way that person will ever come. You ought to hear them talk, Pastor Gary. You ought to hear what they say. They ridicule Christ. Or I've got a neighbor who's an atheist. There's no way he or she would ever come to faith. Who is your Crispus? Got him in your mind now. I want you to write him down. They're sitting next to you. Don't write their name down right now. <clears throat> I want you to write that name down. Because my next thing is I want you to start praying for him. I want you to start praying for him. There's a lady who was here first hour. She has come to me three times over the last several years. Big old smile on her face, tears in her eyes. Gary, my Crispus has come to know Jesus. Three different people she prayed for. Least likely person in her life first time was her sister. Her sister. And her sister came to faith in Jesus. And since then, two more people. I've prayed for a Crispus... Different folks for the last, I've been here 33 years for over 23 years. I've prayed for Christmas. That's the first time I taught this. I've got six names scratched off my list. I'm going to tell you, one of the things that it brings tears to my eyes to think about it. Several of those men worship here with us now. Guys I used to play ball with. Guys I know well. Neighbors who came to faith in Christ. And there's nothing like taking your pen and having a prayer list. And saying, I don't have to pray for their salvation anymore. They're part of the family. Oh, gosh. Start praying for your Christmas. Start praying that they'll come to know Jesus. If you've been here any length of time, I've told this story probably four or five times before. But when I went back for my 10-year high school reunion, if you would have asked me who the Christmas was in my high school in New Orleans, it was a guy named Salvador Giardina. Good Irish name, right? A fellow Italian. Sal was a wild man in high school. I mean, we were, this is the late 60s, I finished high school in 72. This is the era of hippies, and Sal had hair down halfway his back, and uh, Sal disappeared from school for a week, and he came back, and we don't know what happened. He got busted for selling pot, spent a week in, in and out of juvenile detention. And that was Sal. He was a bass player and just a wild man. If you would ask me who the Crispus was in my graduating high school class, I went to high school with all boys, an all-boys high school in New Orleans. Over 500 guys. Out of those 500 guys, Salvador Giardina was the least likely guy to come to know Christ. He was Crispus. So I, I get to go back for my 10-year high school reunion. Finished in 72. That was a long time ago. It was back in 82. I was vice president of my class. And as soon as I, my life had changed, I was voted most changed. So that tells you the kind of life I was leading before then, too. And uh, when I hit the door of the place where we're having the reunion, three of my good buddies walk up and say, Gary, Sal's looking for you. And I'm thinking, this is not going to be a good day. Um, I, Sal was not my closest friend, but we had been friends. And I did some things with Sal I'm not really proud of. And 
I've got my wife in tow with me, and I'm not really anxious for her, for Sal to talk about all this stuff, if you know what I mean. And uh, so they said, Sal's looking for you. And I, I look up, and all of a sudden, man, this guy, now his hair is halfway down his rear end. And uh, I found out he's, he's, he never got over his hippie days. He carves violins for a living. He makes violins. And, uh, oh, Sal comes running to me, man. And I'm thinking, this is not good. He's going to, no telling what's going to happen. And, and Sal just gives me a great big bear hug. And he, he's not a big guy. He's a small guy. And he gave me his great big bear hug. And he said, man, you're not going to believe. I hear you're a preacher. I can't believe that. You remember? And I said, that's enough, Sal. Stop there. I, He said, you're not going to believe what happened. Three years ago, my wife and I, we had all these struggles and somebody dragged us to this little church in, in, in the city. We lived in suburbs in the city. And, and, I, and he's screaming, I came to know Jesus, man. I'm looking around thinking, are you kidding me? <laughs> Sal Giordina is a Jesus freak? He came to know Christ? If Sal can know Christ, you can know Christ. To follow up on that story, uh, about a year later, some folks remembered that story about Sal, and we were going to have a 20-year celebration of Bev and I being at TBC. We had a big to-do at the Mayburn Center. And uh, when I go to sit in my chair, I look across, and to surprise me secretly, they'd flown Sal in <laughs> for the night. And uh, he looked at me, and his first time he'd been on a plane, he said, you know, Gary, I've been high a lot of times in my life, but that's really high up there. <laughs> it's enough, Sal. <laughs> hey, who's your Sal? Who have you given up on? Who's your Crispus? I'm going to tell you, if Sal can come to Christ and Crispus can come to Christ, whoever that person is in your world, then come to Christ. And come to Christ. And some of you have given up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Let me ask you an honest question. How many of you think you are a Christmas on somebody's prayer list? How, how many of you really? You, you are probably the least likely person in somebody's world to come to faith in Christ. Anybody out there? Anybody? You're saying, man, I'm the person that nobody thought would come to faith in Christ. Yeah, several of us. And look where you sit right now. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Well, we move from God giving Paul companionship and converts to comforting him. And he comforts him in, in two ways. First of all, he comforts him by assuring him in verses 9 and 10 that he's going to be okay. Hey, Paul, you're going to make it. It's going to be okay. Go ahead and preach. And so Paul stays for a year and a half. But he also does an amazing thing in verses 12 through 17. And it's something, quite honestly, I had noticed before studying this week. I'm reading through a commentary, and I, I, I had to verify it in several places. And I looked at that, and the way he comforts Paul is by protecting the first century church. The way he comforts Paul in verses 12 through 17 is by protecting the first century church. So, Gary, what do you mean? I mean, where do you get that from? Well, look at what happens. Galeo was pro-counselor of Achaia, so that means he is a Roman overseeing that area. And uh, the Jews came up against Paul, and they brought Paul before the judgment seat. It's called the Bema. We're going to come before the Bema Christ. The Bema was a seat of judgment. So Galeo is the Roman who oversees that region of Achaia. 
that, that province of Greece. And so the Jews coming, and look at what they say in verse 13. This man, Paul, he persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And he's saying, we've got a problem here. Uh, the problem is a legal problem. This guy, Paul, he's making people worship his God, and it's contrary to our law being the Jewish law. Paul was about to say something in verse 14, but Galileo spoke up before he could do it, and he said to the Jews, if this were a matter of wrong or of a vicious crime, it'd be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if these are questions about words and names in your own law, look after yourselves. I'm not willing to judge you in these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. So Gary, how in the world did that comfort and protect the first century church? Well, here's what happened. In Greece at that time, where, where the Romans had authority and power, uh, the, the Jews were protected. The, the Jews had taken a vow they would not pray to the emperor, but they would pray for the emperor. And so they, they were protected by law that they were not being persecuted. You study and you see the Jews weren't really being persecuted uh, throughout the Roman Empire at that time. Christians were. But in Greece, I mean, the gospel was just coming there. And so they go to the, pro, the, the Roman proconsul and say, we've got a problem. This guy's violating the law. He's causing people to worship his God. And so we need you to do something about it. And he looks at them and says, you've got a problem. I don't have a problem. This is a religious issue, not a criminal or civil issue. Be gone. So what's happening here? Well, what's happening here, the Roman proconsul, the Roman leader of that area, looks at them and says, this is a religious issue. And he says, the problem is you. The problem is this is a group that follows after you. This is a group that follows on the, the umbrella of Judaism. Judaism was protected at, the, protected at that time. And so he didn't see Christianity as a separate sect, separate religion, violating any Roman or Greek law. And he said, therefore, this is a religious issue. You be done with. They're protected. That's what happened. If you look at the history of Greece, it's going to be another 30 or 40 years before Christians are persecuted. And so God, it's only God that can orchestrate in his sovereignty something like this. You go to verse 2, and in verse 2, it's Claudius who kicks Aquila and Priscilla because they're Jews out of Rome. And God is providing Paul with companionship through these guys, through this man and woman. And so God orchestrates sovereignly a companionship, friendship through Paul, through a Roman leader in Rome, kicking Jews out of Rome. And then as only God can do, here's another Roman guy who's a leader of that area, and he says, I don't want anything to do with your religious stuff. These people are part of who you are. My law protects them, protects you. This is not a civil or criminal issue. Get away from me. So the early church is protected. Pretty amazing, isn't it? To see the sovereign hand of God over all of human history. It goes back, you remember when the census was taken? When Jesus was about to be born? And they did it according to the Jewish method of taxation. Pagan governor issues that decree. You know why he issued that decree? Because Mary is pregnant in Nazareth. The prophet Micah said Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. How in the world do you get a nine-month pregnant woman... 90 miles away to where she needs to be to give birth to the Messiah to fulfill the prophecy. God uses a pagan ruler to issue a decree, the only time in history that the Romans used the Jewish method of taxation to get the Messiah born where he needed to be. Here comes Paul, 30 plus years later. He needs companions. This pagan Roman emperor says, Jews flee from Rome, Aquila and Priscilla end up in Corinth. 
Another Jewish governor says, hey, this, this is a religious issue. Get away from here. And he protects the church unknowingly. Only God can pull that off. Well, Paul's journey is completed. The rest of the section of that chapter heads back to Antioch. He doesn't stay in Antioch long. Long Next week we're going to see as we're preaching, he starts the third missionary journey. You know, when I look at this whole section, what I see is the father cares for his people. Father cares for his flock. He cares for Paul. He cares for the first century church. He cares for you and he cares for me. The father cares. Hey, Paul, you've got a reason to be discouraged, man. You've been, you've been flogged, beaten, cast into prison, run out of town, gone by yourself. So I'm going to provide you companionship, converts, comfort like you've never seen. The father cares for him and he cares for you. So don't quit. Don't give up. Hang on. He says, I'm going to be with you. Just hang on and don't give up. On a commuter flight from Portland, Maine to Boston, Massachusetts, Henry Dempsey, the pilot of a small commuter flight, heard an unusual noise near the rear of the small aircraft that he was piloting. He turned the controls over to his co-pilot, went to the back to check. As he reached the tail section, the plane hit an air pocket. Dempsey was tossed against the rear door. The rear door contained the steps that you would exit on. And as he was tossed against the rear door, he quickly discovered the source of the mysterious noise. The rear door flew open because it had been properly latched prior to takeoff. He was instantly sucked out of the jet. His co-pilot, seeing the red light, indicated an open door, found out that he'd been, he'd, he'd, he'd been taken out of the back of the jet radio of the nearest airport, requesting permission for an emergency landing. He reported the pilot had fallen out of the plane, requested a Coast Guard helicopter search of that area of the ocean outside of Maine. After the plane landed, emergency landing, I mean, they hadn't taken off that long. They found Henry Dempsey, the pilot. He was holding on to the outside, uh, uh, holding on to the outdoor ladder of the aircraft. Somehow he had caught the ladder when he got sucked up. It had taken 12 minutes for him to land. The plane had been flying a little bit over 200 miles an hour at an altitude of over 4,000 feet when it finally landed. His head was less than 12 inches off the runway. He was upside down hanging on. Less than 12 inches off the runway. I love the way the newspaper article ends. It says it took airport personnel several minutes to pry Dempsey's fingers from the ladder. <laughs> you bet it did. I'm surprised 10 years later that's hanging on still. Can you? Don't give up. You've got something great in the airport ladder. You've got a great God, a father who loves you, who cares for you and says, don't stop. Don't quit. You may be discouraged like Paul was. Don't give up. I'm going to be with you. Father, thank you for being with us every step of the way. Thank you for giving us a Savior. The one we celebrate today, Jesus, the Messiah, who died, rose, and lives at your right hand even now, interceding for us. You may know about Jesus, but may not know him personally, may not have accepted him for the forgiveness of your sins. Would you make sure that happens? You may be somebody's Christmas today, somebody's Sal, least likely person to come to faith. And God's put you right here at Temple Bible Church for this purpose today, that your life will be eternally transformed. Would you trust Jesus today? 
For those of us that know Jesus, you've got two assignments. You're going to contact a friend and thank them for their friendship. And you're going to write down the name of a Christmas and you're going to begin to pray. And I pray one day you'll walk up to me and say, Pastor Gary, my Christmas name is scratched off. Thank you, Father, for a word from you. In Jesus' name, amen.